No luck catching them killers then, eh? My name is Jason. I am the last manager of the last video store in the universe. I'm not busy managing the last video store in the universe. And by the way, if you have a video store, I just happen to not be in your universe. Uh, when I'm not busy managing that, I go to movies. And I talk about them instantaneously on the internet. Now, normally, you'd be able to get this instant reaction even more instantaneously over on Patreon. Patreon.com slash binge movies. Was unable to get it early over there to our illustrious patrons at all levels. So instead, I'm going to be doing a make good by doing a Patreon exclusive instant reaction for the new Adam Driver picture, 65. So uh, go over to Patreon, patreon.com slash binge movies. You'll get exclusive access to all kind of wonderful stuff. And we have a bunch of different tiers that come with different benefits. The benefits kind of stack on top of each other. We've got some cool stuff coming along the way. Uh, so go ahead and check that out now. Normally what happens is I go to the movie theater, I leave the movie theater, I come and stand in front of a microphone, and I kind of ramble for a bit. I'm going to tweak it just a little bit, thanks to some feedback from the usual suspects over on at Binge Movies on Twitter. You can also follow us on Instagram, at Binge Movies Lives. Thank you for those who have already followed us. Um, so yeah, that's what I normally do, right? So what I've decided to do is I'm going to tweak it a little bit. I'm going to give you just kind of general impressions up front, a general review, spoiler-free, uh, give you a score. We'll use the letterbox score, which is out of five. I can do half points, but no quarter points. And uh, then there'll be a hard break, and then that will be the spoiler and ramble portion. That's going to be me kind of piecing the galaxy together through the brain the dark movie overlords have clouded and polluted with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of films, most of them by the director Albert Pune. Okay, so some non-spoiler thoughts up front. What do you do when a legacy sequel, requel, whatever we want to call it, when when that subseries has run out of gas? We just had Creed Three, which is a solid movie with some, with an excellent performance with Jonathan Majors. But if you're asking me what I think, I think the Creed series is out of gas. We've told everything that's worth telling about Adonis Creed at this point in the game, right? Because we did these time jumps and all this sort of stuff. So um, that was meant to reinvigorate the Rocky franchise. And now we've sort of expended that. This Scream reboot legacy requel. We're now too deep into this. Scream 5, Scream 6 with the... I always want to call it Ready Player One or Radio Players 5. What are they called? Silent Radio... Radio Silent, Radio Deadly, Video Killed the Radio Star, whatever they're called. <clears throat> and um, I, think, I think we're out of gas again. I think we're completely and entirely out of gas. Um, I'm seeing rave reviews for this, and I couldn't disagree more. And I'll tell you why. Uh, in the 1990s, um, it was an unusual thing to have media that was self-referential about pre-existing media. Okay, whether you want to call that postmodernist film, postmodernist pop culture, whatever. Gen X kind of created that, for lack of a better term. At the very least, popularized it. Somebody's going to be able to go back to like 17th century French literature and say, well, actually, this, this poem, you know, Voltaire is actually, I don't know what century Voltaire is, and it's been a long time since I've stayed, but it's such and such as an actualism, meta commentary on, yes, you're probably right. But what I'm saying is, 
for most people, Kevin Smith and Kevin Williamson, the two Kevins, popularized meta-commentary. And the novelty of meta-commentary at that time was that it hadn't happened yet. We had a decade of people watching movies obsessively for the first time ever over and over and over again because you could rent and or own them at home video for the first time ever. And so we became more familiar and more saturated with the same kind of movies, right? Everybody watched Raiders of the Lost Ark to death and Back to the Future and Flashdance and Ghostbusters, of course, and RoboCop and the list goes on and on. Star Wars, all of them, you know, three of them at that point. The Star Trek films, like, like there were these, these things that came out that everybody knew. We all quoted it. And it was, it was, it's the equivalent of memes before memes, right? And it happened in an analog era, so it moved at analog speed. We're now in a digital era, and probably actually a post-digital era. And so everything's instantaneous. Something takes off on TikTok, it becomes a viral trend. By the end of the week, it's gone. If it even lasts a week, right? <clears throat> like by the time you've seen something twice, it already feels dated. And we've had nothing but self-referential meta media for 20-some years. Every movie is an Easter egg unto itself. So, to reinvigorate the Scream franchise with a fresh batch of commentary for... The legacy sequel era was interesting, a film ago, which I guess came out of what, about a year ago this time, about a year ago, maybe January, February, about a year ago. Because it had been a while since a Scream franchise, the Scream, it had been a while since a Scream film, right? And it, it, it provides us with an ability to have commentary, sort of pop culture commentary on what's going on in the world, what's going on in the state of movies, what's going on in the state of culture. And there's like this weird tonal kind of quasi campiness to it all. And I think the original cast was able to, for the most part, most of those movies kind of juggle the, they're odd movies if you really watch them because they're sort of smart and corny and stupid and cliche and witty all at the same time. They're kind of a mess of a movie, but there's a charm to them. Um, I don't think that this new cast, two movies in, can really wrap itself around the tone that's necessary within the Scream franchise. Um, and I, I think the dialogue in this movie is abysmal. And Roger Ebert used to have a, a thing where he said it was like a explosion at the screenplay factory or the cliche factory. And he would use both interchangeably. And that's what this movie is to me. It has uh, really illogical leaps. There's no spoilers here. But uh, Sam Carpenter <clears throat> uh, is getting a therapy session. She's speaking, and this is in the trailer, so it's not a spoiler. So she's speaking to a therapist who just so happens to be Kittredge from Mission Impossible. Kittredge, you've never seen me. Very upset. Who's going to be making a return, possibly as a villain, which I'll, that's all I've been begging for. Um, And I'm sitting there and I'm watching it. And first of all, the whole scene is acted poorly, directed poorly, written poorly between her and her psych psychiatrist. Um, it's just, it's so 
cringe. There's no other way to put it. And it's also, it's the middle of the goddamn night because simultaneously as she's in a therapy session, her younger sister, Jenna Ortega, is Tara, who plays Tara, is at a frat party. So either this frat party is at 4 p.m. or this therapy session is at midnight. Because I don't know any college kids who are getting dressed up for a Halloween party at 5 o'clock in the afternoon when it's pitch black dark outside. There's another issue where, and this is maybe a light spoiler, where the psychiatrist, again, Kittredge from the first Mission Impossible, shout outs to Brian De Palma. Uh, this person um, doesn't even know who he's talking to. All you've done is allude to your past. Like, tell me what's really going on. She's like, oh, well, my dad is Billy Loomis as if, and I guess I can go with it to where, okay, he might know who that is because of the stab movies, I guess. But have they made a stab movie in a long time? Like, I, it's like, we're now into this thing where it's like characters know things and say things and do things because in a weird way, the movies themselves must exist within this universe. Now, Scream, Scream series kind of got ahead of that by making the stab series. But at a certain point, it's like it's a snake in its own tail. And that's what this movie is. And these movies at their best were like pop slashers. They were they were pop slashers that were part commentary and pop culture. And again, that was creative, that was different, that was unique, and also a slasher, and the slasher boom had come and gone. And it had been basically a decade since slashers were any main, were mainstream at all, really. Um, and, or at least mainstream and well-accepted when the first Scream came out. And this, but here we've almost come full circle where it's like, well, we're making the commentary, but see... Those, that commentary was necessary for the Scream series because you had to reimagine and enliven the slasher genre because it had degraded very, very quickly, the American slasher, into a series of tropes and cliches that were tiresome. You've seen it once, you've seen it a hundred times. And here we are again now, right? Here we are again, in my opinion, where all of these people go to the same school. All of the people who survived the most recent Woodsboro massacre have all moved to New York City together. Why? Right? When you're six movies deep and every character, you've had an iteration of every single possible character for murder fodder or for potential murderers, what's left to be done? And the whole time I'm watching this, I'm like, this is nothing but... We're trying to fast forward through all the beats of all the scream stuff and all the winks and all the nods and all the monologues and all the shit you've seen a thousand times. And this person might be the killer and all the red herrings. And, and to me, of all the scream movies, this was the most obvious from beginning to end who the killer was. And I'm, I'll get in that in the spoiler section. And it's got some strong set pieces, some killer set pieces. That's it, man. Everything else in between this is, is, trite and cliche and poorly acted the young actress who plays sam carpenter uh, barrera her name is escaping me now stinks i'm sorry to say it. it's horrible and it's like you're watching on screen you're like man boy this franchise bet on the wrong horse because had it been jenny ortega in that role as sam carpenter i think this is this strong this franchise would be on stronger footing all of the supporting cast around her is terrible it feels like it feels like 
it, it feels almost like a, a, a say by the bell of college years. No, say by the bell of the new class where it's like, this is the character you already know, but kind of isn't. And now it's played by a younger person. And rather that this person is Zach and Screech combined. And it's like, oh my God, it has none of the charm, none of the charm whatsoever, whatsoever. Now that most of the legacy characters out of this, now if Campbell's not returning, uh, obviously, you know, there's some other characters who didn't make it to the last film. They didn't return. And then a lot of the legacy characters are sidelined, except for Hayden, Hayden Pettentier, who makes a return as Kirby. And maybe one of the lamest excuses to insert a character back in the movie, I didn't believe anything about this character and not a single note of her performance felt real at all. And that's in a movie where most of the performances were really bad, including the villains. <clears throat> and let me give you an example of why this movie is so cliche. This is a sort of movie where the professionals, whatever professional we need, be it the FBI, be it an EMT, be it the police, be it whoever, they only show up, the doors violently blow open, and here come the troops, here come the support, you know, the frontline workers immediately after everything has happened. Somebody just got stabbed. The killer runs off screen right. And as soon as they run off screen right, bam, the doors blow open. And oh my God, here comes the stretcher. I was like, were you just waiting outside? Were you just waiting outside until the, the killer is like, okay, killer exit stage, right? You know, killer exit stage left, you know, like what the heck? It happened so many times, I almost thought it was on purpose. Is this trying to be a cliche? I, I just, I don't understand. Um, at this point, you're just repeating the same beats that you've got a million different times, and the meta-narrative aspect is no longer fresh. It's a 2.5 out of 5. Um, I don't think it's a very good movie at all, and I would argue I'd have to revisit them all, but... Probably one of the weaker entries into the series. Um, I here's the thing: I'm relatively pro Scream because um, I, you know, obviously the '90s ones I grew up with. So I feel kind of um, I enjoy them for their weirdness, their camp, and there's a sort of episodic quality to them, in which the character and the character relationships sort of grow in some way. And even if they don't grow, it's like, okay, every couple of years we make a screen movie and it's like coming back to these familiar characters and whose, whose character has advanced, who's regressed, all this sort of stuff. Um, and that's, that, that's what gives it a sort of a longer endearing charm over and above ghost face and killers and whatnot over and above, like how clever is the twist? It's at a certain point you find the cast and different additions to the cast along the way, charming or interesting. And, um, whew, boy, we, we're no longer doing that. We're just, every character in here is a regression on whatever happened to them the last time you saw them across the board. Okay. 2.5 out of five. Not very good. Um, not very good at all. Okay. Uh, spoilers and rambles in galaxy brain right after this. <sighs> okay. Um, let's start with the kills. So there's an opening sequence with the guy that plays Flash Thompson in the Spider-Man movies where he is uh, catfishing Samara Weaving, who is, catch this, 
a 20th century slasher film prof at not NYU, not Columbia, at Blackmore University in Manhattan. Now, I want you to put those two words together. She's a not a, not a 20th century horror prof or horror scholar. She's a film scholar who teaches a class in 20th century slashers. Use your noggin. I know it's the 21st century. I know this movie is for Zoomers and Zillennials and Youngins. But put those two words together. 20th century slashers. When did Giallo make the transition from adaptations of Edgar Wallace novels to film? When, when did that happen? What year was the first slasher, first official slasher, which is under debate? Let's, let's make it the first American slasher. What year did that come out? Now, if you're going to make a horror movie about a bunch of horror experts being meta about horror, should you have a character say, I am a professor of 20th century slashers, when the slasher is, in particular, a genre that existed and started and originated in the 20th century? So, the premise is interesting. If you know me, you know that I get frustrated with interesting premises that have poor executions, and this movie is a pile of contrivances until it chokes the execution and the premise nearly to death. The... Premise is that there, there are copycat ghost face, which at this point, every ghost face is a copycat of a ghost face, right? A copycat ghost face. All of the ghost faces are copycats, including the guys who copycatted themselves when they were the original ghost face. Copycat ghost faces are trying to finish the movie of Richie, who was a copycat ghost face from the requel, to finish his bad student film that were bad wannabe VHS stab movies. I don't know why they would even give a shit. And they bait and switch Samara Weaving, who is a professor of 20th century slasher films at not NYU film school, uh, into a Tinder date and uh, then lure her into an alley and brutally murder her, then go on about their business and it's all a warm up. It's all, they're all psychopaths. They're film students, film nerd students who are obsessed with horror, who are psychopaths, who are there to whatever. They're going to kill the Carpenter sisters. But instead, they're intercepted by another ghost faced copycat killer who's killing ghost faced copycats, or at least those two, because they want to kill the Carpenter sisters. This leads, eventually we get, you know, uh, the bodega scene, which you've seen the trailers, which shouldn't have been the trailers because it's a pretty good set piece. And we've got a ghost face who is uh, extraordinarily more violent than we've probably ever seen him before. And these are probably some of the most brutal kills. The strongest part of this movie are the set pieces. It's just that everything else around it is junk. I'm going to get right to it. Who are the killers? Um, I immediately figured out who the killer was when Ginny, the sex-positive roommate, talks about her dead brother, and then the phone calls are coming from Richie's phone number, who was somehow not deleted by Sam. So in the real world, unless it's spoofed, the only person who could be calling from his phone is his family members who have access to his account because theoretically they're on a family share plan. But then Ginny's dad is Dermot Mulrooney, and he's not going to be in a movie if he's just random cop number five. 
And he's investigating the case. More on that in a second. And that means if she's somehow connected to Richie and she's the killer, she talks about her dead brother and how it drove her dad crazy. And that's why her dad transferred to New York City to be with her. Um, then that must mean the dad's in on it. With, and then, which, okay, we're, I'm going to get to this. But then they try to throw you off the scent because Ginny, I'm assuming that's her name. I'm just going to say that's her name. Tara and Sam's roommate is killed in front of us but she's not really dead, even though cops who aren't serial killers, the NYPD forensic folks show up to the scene of the murder because her fuck buddy and her and a bunch of other people died during probably one of the better set pieces of this, uh, where Ghostface appears within their apartment. Uh, the, the Sam and Tara and I'm going to call her Ginny again, her apartment. Okay. So, she fakes her own death for her roommates, which I could see in the melee and goes face chasing them. They see blood splurting out of her neck. They think she could be really dead and she falls to the ground. Of course she's dead, but how they fool the cops. Dermot Mulroney has a throwaway line during one of the most cartoonish monologues, in this entire franchise where he goes full on wacky Looney tunes. And he's like, Oh, well, uh, it's amazing what a grieving dad can do in a little prosthetics and some Hollywood makeup. And it's like, I just had to be the cop who reported to the scene first, but you're not a cop. You're her father. I mean, he is a cop, but you're her father. And there's also just the whole contrivance of the dad of the roommate of the prime suspect is the guy who catches the case. And it's not a conflict of interest. Makes no sense. Then his daughter ends up being one of the victims, and he just so happens to be the first cop to report to the scene. Makes no sense. Even though, if, even if he was staging it, makes no sense. Then somehow he gets there while the other kids are still in the area, takes a dead body up to their apartment and swaps it out for his daughter, who's only pretending to be dead, or she helps him carry a body. Has no one else on the police force met his daughter? Now, of course, you could argue, well, he's a recent transfer to the police force. Okay, sure, whatever, right? It just doesn't make any sense. There's Gail gets attacked in her apartment in the only scene in the entire movie that got a laugh because nobody laughed at any of this, where she hangs up on the killer and she says, well, can I put you on hold for a second? Hangs up on him when he's monologuing. He goes, oh, what? And then it's actually kind of funny. And then calls him back and then whatever. And then she gets stabbed and we think she's going to die. She doesn't die. There's a subway scene where Mindy, who's the female Randy of the twins. I think they're twins. Chad and Mindy. Um, Mindy gets fucked up and should be dead after she's already been fucked up during the apartment scene where she's had a femoral artery cut. And then she gets her guts rearranged by a knife and Ethan is the red herring of the movie because nobody really knows who he is. And he's the weird virgin guy who's not a character. He's got maybe five lines in the entire movie. Three of them are after he is revealed that he is actually part of the killer because surprise, he's the other sibling. He's Dermot Mulroney's other son. And there's a half a beat where Dermot Mulroney's monologuing about that, how he lost his favorite son. And then we cut over to him emoting about like, oh, I'm not my daddy's favorite. Not enough time for it. Got to kill him. Um, there's a whole big contrivance about 
all of the memorabilia from the in-world murders, the Woodsboro murders, and some memorabilia from the Stab movies is found in an abandoned movie theater that was rented under the names of the two movie kids. You only ever see the one. The other one's just decapitated in a refrigerator, hearkening back to Friday the 13th. And yes, Jason takes Manhattan, makes an appearance on the television screen at the very beginning of the movie. And I get, I, ooh, let me let me get to that in a second. And Kirby, who is lame, who's the in the FBI, why would they allow a woman who's a victim of Woodsboro murders to to be an FBI agent? But if they let her be an FBI agent, why would they let her be the lead investigator on a new set of copycat Woodsboro murders? She's from the Atlanta field office, but she's reporting on loan to New York City. But New York City has its own field office. Why would you send somebody who is not impartial to the field office? Like, it just doesn't fucking make any sense. And part of it is like the movie is so filled with contrivances that you feel as if, well, maybe they're doing the contrivances on purpose. So that then you're like, well, that's contrived. Maybe she's the killer. Well, that's contrived. Maybe he's the killer. The boyfriend who appears who isn't even a real killer. But we've seen that sort of stuff done in this series before to much smarter, greater effect. It no longer feels as if this is their writing tropes as an intelligent way to subvert our expectations. They're just going, well, that's what the screen movies are known for. So let's just write the tropes. And then they don't serve any purpose. That's what it feels like. So Dermot Mulroney then takes the movie theater and pretends and transfers it in the name of the two kids who are already dead so they can trick them into thinking that Kirby is the killer somehow. But then Skeet Ulrich's ghost appears and tells Sam to kill, and then she does kill. And at this point, I think it would almost be more interesting if the series was about serial killers trying to hunt down the daughter of a serial killer and killing her, which I guess is kind of what this is. But they do this thing again where, is she crazy? Is she She's going to put on the mask. And she finally puts on the mask. But then she throws the mask away. and But she leaves it in the street. Which, you know, somebody else is going to pick it. It's just like, uh, nobody has a problem with the a cop who is then taken off the case because his daughter is a prime suspect using police resources to continue to investigate the murder of his daughter with an FBI agent who's also using FBI resources, including a surveillance van without a surveillance team. It's just her and some teenagers in a laptop in an Enterprise rent-a-car van. Uh, if you can't tell, I think this movie sucks. I think it's very poorly written. I think it's very poorly acted. I think the dialogue is terrible. I don't believe in these relationships. I don't, the movie's not smart. It's not intelligent. The only thing it has going for it is one, two, three, four, five. I wouldn't even say five, six, seven. I'd say six reasonably strong set pieces. If all you want is slashings and murderings and killings and stabbings and guttings, most of which that do not result in any permanent damage or death, this is the film for you. I didn't like the movie. It may make my worst of the year. That's how much I didn't like it. 2.5 out of 5. Uh, don't recommend it. Till next time, binge on. <laughs>